You know, Super Bowl Sunday uh, is a lot for is is a lot for non Christians. It's a lot like what uh, Easter Sunday is for nominal Christians. Uh, you know, Easter Sunday, people show up to church you haven't seen all year. Uh, then on Super Bowl Sunday, people pray who haven't prayed all year either. As, as, <laughs> as they're praying for their team to win, as many American football fans believe that their prayers can kind of push their team over the edge, just give them the edge that they need to win the big game. A couple of years ago, a survey went out and it said that 25% of Americans believe that God cares about who wins the Super Bowl. And apparently that means he likes the Patriots a lot uh, because they're in it all the time and they win it more times than not. It also means that he's probably given Tom Brady eternal life, considering he's still going strong at his age. And, and uh, now for those of you who may be like Bryant or Mark, who are on a ministry staff, and, and uh, you might refer to football as just another sports ball game or something along those lines, Tom Brady's a quarterback. Uh, he plays quarterback for the Patriots. That means that he's kind of running the, the, the team who's trying to score points. He decides who the ball goes and all of those good things. And Tom Brady's like 120 years old, uh, still, going, still going strong. Uh, Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, open up to the passage that was read for us a moment ago. Because if you're here and if you've ever struggled with knowing why you should pray, and if you've ever struggled as a disciple in knowing what you should pray for, this passage is going to serve you well today. Because in this passage, Paul cues us into what he is praying for the church in Ephesus. And Paul was a man who prayed for the churches that he led. He prayed for the churches that he loved. If you just look at the New Testament, considering Paul wrote 13 of the 27 letters that are found in the New Testament, of those 13 letters, Paul puts 42 prayers in them. So Paul prayed a lot, and this is one of the prayers that he prayed for the church at Ephesus and that we are privileged to learn from this morning because one of the ways that you and I learn how to pray is by listening to our leaders, listening to our leaders and how they pray. That's how the disciples learned how to pray. They walked up to Jesus one day and said, hey, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus, of course, obliged to answer their request, and he turned to the disciples and said, when you pray, I want you to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, so Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. But understand that when Jesus told the disciples, when you pray, pray like this, he wasn't encouraging them to just mindlessly parrot back those words in specific detail. Instead, he's providing them with a paradigm or a pattern of prayer that starts with how you and I are privileged to address God when we talk to him. That we don't just talk to him and address him as our creator. We talk to him and we address him as our father. He says, pray to God who is your heavenly father. And then he begins to lay out some of the things that you and I want to pray for in our prayer lives. We want to pray for God's purposes in the world. We want to pray for God's provision in our lives. We want to pray for God's power in our relationships. We want to pray for God's protection over us to to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from evil. Those are the types of things that we pray for regularly as followers of Jesus. Now, the first generation of churches, they, they learned how to pray by listening to the apostles. 
They learned how to pray by reading the letters that Paul and Peter and James and John would write to the churches. And in these letters, they would include prayers. And so they would hear how the apostles were praying. And in the process of hearing that, they would learn how to pray themselves. And what's interesting is when you look at Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 1 is that uh, Paul addresses God as the glorious father. That's not too unlike Jesus is our heavenly father. So Paul, in his discipleship, he's learned, you know, God's not just my creator, he's my father, and he addresses him as such. So he knows how to address, address God, and he knows the types of things to pray for. And understand that Paul's not praying for something as short-sighted as a Super Bowl victory. He's praying for God's power, for the father to unleash his power in the life of the church. And this gets after one of the reasons why we want to pray. You see, a prayerful church is a powerful church. And the flip side of that is also true. A prayerless church is a what? Powerless church. So if we want to see God's power unleashed in our lives and unleashed in our church, unleashed throughout this city, prayer is the ignition switch that makes that, that, makes that happen. And what I find interesting about Paul's prayer here is that he prays in verses 15 all the way down to 23. He prays for the things that he affirmed already to be true about the church in the previous passage. If you recall from last week's talk, we looked at verses 3 through 14 and and we saw how Paul is just praising God for the way that God has blessed his children, that he's blessed us richly in Christ and we affirmed last week the blessings that belong to the church that are ours in Christ. We, said the, we talked about the blessing of being wanted by God. We talked about the blessing of being rescued by God. We talked about the blessing of being tuned in to what God is up to in the universe, bringing everything to a climax in Christ. We, we talked about the blessing of being hopeful. And we talked about the blessing of being sealed by the Holy Spirit, marked out by God so that we are owned by God. And so after affirming those truths over the church, Paul then in verse 15 starts to pray these truths into the church. You see, apart from prayer, there remains a disconnect between truth affirmed and truth applied, between truth believed and truth embodied. Now, when I was a kid, I was a part of a church that had a vending machine. And this was back in the day where vending machines didn't take cards or, or, or cash. It took coins. And so uh, every week, I would collect all the coins in my couch in my living room to take them to church so I could get some hot tamales or some lemon heads because those were my favorite. Now, this old vending machine, when you would drop a quarter into it, a lot of times that quarter would just get lodged. And if the quarter doesn't drop, then nothing's coming out of the machine and so when the coin would kind of get dropped and would, would just kind of get stuck and lodged in the slot, I would have to bang on the machine. I would have to shake it and kick it as best as I could as a seven-year-old kid to cause that coin to drop. But I did it until the coin dropped. Because until that coin dropped, I wasn't getting any candy. Nothing was coming out of that machine. Well, when you think about prayer, I want you to understand this morning that prayer is what drops truth into the heart. And Paul want, doesn't want these truths in verses 3 through 14 to get lodged into our heads. He prays for them to drop into our hearts. Because only when they drop into our hearts will they show forth in our lives. Only then will grace be made visible to the watching world as the impact and the realities of the gospel begin to show up and to show out in our lives and in our community. 
So we don't want truth to just get lodged in our head because when truth gets lodged in our head, we become bobble-headed Christians. Bobble-headed Christians who are big-headed but perhaps small-hearted. We may know a lot of truth, but we are lacking in power. And Much like the Grinch, we need our hearts to grow. But in order for our hearts to grow, truth has to drop from our head to our hearts. And what causes that to happen is prayer. So Paul begins to pray the truths he's already affirmed about the church to be realized in the life of the church. Now, when you think about the church, when it was birthed in Jerusalem, when that first generation of Christians was, was birthed in the world, we're told that the apostles, that was the leaders of the church in that moment, they devoted themselves to two things. They devoted themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. That is to say, they were devoted to truth and power because the apostles knew that that's what the church needs. Just like two wings of an airplane, the church needs truth and power. That a church that has truth without power, they can just kind of lapse into a dry intellectualism in their Christianity. But at the same time, if a church has what looks like power but no truth, that can lapse into a a messy emotionalism. And either truth or power And not both and, that's not going to lead the church to where God has called us to go. And we're not going to be who God has called us to be in the world. And so Paul prays here for truth to drop, essentially. But notice how he begins his prayer in verse verse 15. That he begins his prayer by expressing gratitude for evidences of God's grace in the church. He says in verse 15, this is why since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus... And your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. So he expresses gratitude for two things. He says, I'm grateful about two things that are evident in the church in Ephesus. I'm I'm grateful that you guys believe in Jesus. I'm grateful that you have faith in Christ. But I'm also grateful because another evidence of grace is that you love one another. That he's glad that the saints are loving each other. Now, Faith in Jesus and love for the church, those are two sides of the same coin. And when you think about it, this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who believes in Jesus and loves the church. But I know not everybody realizes that. Perhaps not everybody in this room actually believes that. If we were to take a poll and we were to ask, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Chances are some of you and a lot of people perhaps in our surrounding culture will answer that question. To be a Christian means to have a relationship with Jesus. It's about me having a personal relationship with Jesus. And they will answer that question in those terms. Chances are not many people are going to say being a Christian means to love the church. But if you and I were to ask Paul, and if you and I were to ask Jesus... Hey, Jesus, what does it mean to be a Christian? Hey, Paul, what does it mean to be a Christian? I believe they're going to look at us and say, it means to believe in Christ and to love the church. I mean, just think about what Jesus says in John 13. He says, John 13, he makes the statement, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you love the church, my disciples, my people. That's how you know. And then you consider a warning that we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, a warning that says, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother and sister, his brother or sister, he is a liar. Translation, I love Jesus, but not the church. 
That's what he's pointing out there. I love God, yet hate my brother or my sister. Then he goes on, for the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also love the ones born of him. Believe in Jesus and love the church. That's what it means to be a Christian. And there should be both a vertical and horizontal evidence of grace in our lives if we call ourselves Christian, if we claim to believe in Jesus. This is why the cross is an appropriate metaphor. Vertically, we believe in Jesus. Horizontally, we love the church. We love God's people. And you know that love for the church is showing up in your lives and it's flowing out of your lives when you just consider how you're encouraging one another. You consider how you're serving one another, how you're giving to one another, how you're forgiving one another, how you're sharing life together, this love that flows towards the well-being of those around us, loving the church in concrete, tangible, local, visible kinds of ways. But one of the reasons perhaps why there may be a lack of love for the church in our lives, one of the reasons may be because there's a lack of gratitude for the church in our prayers If we lack love for the church in our lives, it may be because we lack gratitude for the church in our prayers. And then the question becomes, well, how do you grow in gratitude? Well, growing in gratitude is as simple as changing changing your perspective. Growing in gratitude means that you're not going to get hung up on the fact that rose bushes have thorns. Instead, you're going to be stunned by the fact that thorns have roses. And when you think about the church, that's where you're going to go. Rather than fixating on the flaws of the church, and I admit there are many flaws about the church, instead, you're gonna focus on the fact that the church exists. And you're gonna thank God that there's any people in the world who believe in Jesus, that there are any people in the world who are following Jesus, that there are any people in the world who are worshiping and serving Jesus. That's what's gonna stun you. And so let me ask you, is, there, is this how you see each other? Do you see each other as saints in Christ? When you think about the church, is the church a rose bush that has thorns and that that's all you focus on? Or are you stunned by the fact that thorns have roses, that we are sinners saved by grace, and that we are all works in process? What we need to learn is how to view each other through the goggles of the gospel, that we might see each other the way God sees us. Changing our perspective will make us grateful for one another. You think about Paul's example in 1 Corinthians. I love the fact that Paul expressed gratitude for the church at Corinth because if there was ever a flawed church in the New Testament, it was that church. People were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. There was a, there was a guy who was hooking up with his mother-in-law. There, there was a situation of competition and everybody jockeying for power and influence in the church. It was a highly dysfunctional church. And yet when Paul writes a letter to them, the first thing he says, I want you to know that I give thanks to God for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you where? In Christ Jesus. I'm grateful for you despite all this other stuff because I know ultimately you are in Christ. I'm gonna look at you through the goggles of the gospel. That's what Paul is doing. That's why he could express gratitude. And this is why you and I can always express gratitude for the church. Despite her flaws, despite her hangups, when we look at the church with the goggles of the gospel, we can express gratitude to God for the church. 
But the thing about gratitude is that gratitude isn't something that we just express to God. It's something that we need to express to each other, that we need to express it in person. When you think about Paul's prayer here, Paul is telling the church that he's grateful to God for the church, but he's communicating that to the church. He's like, I'm grateful to God, but I'm not just telling him, I'm telling the church. Because gratitude that goes unexpressed is not gratitude. You're not really grateful for anything unless you express gratitude. So Paul says, look, I'm grateful to God and I want you to know it. So he's telling the church that he's grateful for them. You see, one of the reasons why I think Christians get burnt out in serving the church, one of the reasons why that happens is because they oftentimes feel unappreciated because they don't hear a simple word of thanks. They don't see disciples expressing gratitude And a lot of times they will get burnt out. So let me encourage you, as you see evidences of grace in one another's lives, be quick to express your appreciation to one another. Because appreciation, gratitude, that's what put wind wind in our cells. That's what beats back discouragement and it beats back deception. This type of gratitude can saturate a parched soul. So let's be a grateful people for the church. Let's thank God. And let's thank God for each other, to each other, expressing it, expressing gratitude to one another. Now, a lack of love for the church in our lives may be signaled by a lack of gratitude for the church in our prayers, but it can also be uh, signaled by a lack of intercession for the church. One of the reasons perhaps you don't love the church is because you've never prayed for the church. You've never took time to pray for God's activity and for God's realities to be better realized in the life of the church. There's a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer back in World War II. He, he wrote a little book called Life Together. And it's a book I highly recommend because he talks about community and how Christians should relate to one another and the privilege and the gift of grace that the church is. And listen to what he says about how the church should pray for one another. He says, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it's gonna collapse. He said, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. That changes everything. He says it becomes the face of a forgiven sinner. This is a happy discovery for the Christian who begins to pray for the church. When you begin to pray for the church, God fills your life with a love for the church. So intercession is where we want to uh, grow in our love for the church is by learning how to pray for one another. This is what Paul, again, does in this passage. He voices gratitude in verses 15 and 16, but then when you get to verse 17, what does he do? He starts interceding. He starts asking God for things. He starts praying for the church, and, and notice where he starts in verse 17. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, spirit there, I believe, is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, because it is the spirit of truth who draws us into a deeper understanding of the difference Jesus makes in our lives. That's why he's qualified as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's what the spirit does. Now, what's interesting about this, because he's praying for the church, saying, I want you to give them the Holy Spirit for these reasons and for these purposes that we're gonna see for a moment. But if you look back up at verse 13, Paul already told the church, look, you're sealed by what? You're sealed by the promised spirit. So what happened? Does the church have the Holy Spirit or do they need to get the Holy Spirit? Where is the Holy Spirit at in relation to the church? 
Now, I don't think Paul is ignorant. I don't think Paul is naive. I don't think he's so obtuse that he's forgotten what he's already stated. And I don't think he's so obtuse that he's forgotten what's true about the church. Instead, I think what's happening here is Paul is praying because he wants the truth of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the church to drop from the head to the heart. He's praying, look, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to sense him. I want all that God has done for you to be unleashed within you through the Holy Spirit's presence. He's praying for truth to drop. He's praying for truth affirmed to become truth applied. So he's saying, I want the Holy Spirit to swell up within you. This is why later in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the language there is this idea of over and over and over again, praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us up and to strengthen us and to minister to us. And so this is what he's asking for here. So he wants truth to draw truth about the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. And, and he actually identifies three things, three things that kind of are in the Holy Spirit's wheelhouse, what the Holy Spirit loves to do for us in our lives, three ways the Holy Spirit ministers to us. The first way is captured in the word intimacy. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us into an intimate relationship with Christ, so he's essentially saying, I want you to be given the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can be intimate with Jesus, so that you can know him well. Notice what he says. He says, it says that he asks God to give the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of Jesus. Now, understand, he's not praying for the church to, to learn more facts about Jesus. He's praying for the facts about Jesus to be felt by them that they would experience a rich, and a rich, intimate relationship with their Savior, that the Holy Spirit would apply the reality of Christ to the church. And the reason why I say that is because there are two words that Paul could have used to describe knowledge. There are two words in the Greek language that Paul could have chosen. The first one is this word oida. And oida is a word that is typically associated with data, knowledge by way of facts, and that's not the word that Paul uses here because he knows you can learn facts about people without knowing people. For example, I know that Steph Curry's first name is Wardell. I know that he was born on March 14th, 1988, that he plays point guard for the Golden State Warriors, that he sports number two, and that he is the greatest shooter of a basketball that the world has ever seen. That's a fact. It cannot be disputed. I know facts about Steph Curry, but that does not mean that I know Steph Curry. That's not the type of knowledge that Paul's getting after here. He's not saying, I want you to know facts about Jesus, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was raised in Nazareth, that he served in Galilee and Judea, that he died on the cross, or even that he rose from the grave. As important as those facts are, that's not the knowledge Paul's talking about here. He's using a different word that gets away from, that, that moves from data to delight, that moves from facts to feelings, that moves from education to experience. He's saying the knowledge that I'm talking about isn't stated knowledge, but sensed knowledge. It's the difference between saying, you know, Jesus died on the cross for sin and saying Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That's the difference between these two knowledges. You might know that Jesus died for sin, but until you are saying Jesus died for my sin, you don't have this type of knowledge, this experiential knowledge that he's praying for here. He's talking about relational intimacy. There's a Hebrew word that, the Hebrew version of this word that was used for sexual intimacy, so that when you read in the Old Testament and you kind of get that colorful language, a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, they knew each other. It doesn't mean that they educated each other. 
It means that they experienced each other. And that's what Paul's praying for here. He's praying that we would experience intimacy with Jesus. He wants us to know intimacy with Jesus, relational experience. That's what he's going after. That's what the Holy Spirit delights to bring into our lives. You know, the solution to the dry spiritual season that some of you are in right now, the solution is as simple as a prayer. That solution is a prayer, a way where you begin to pray, God, give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation to bring me into the knowledge of Christ. Holy Spirit, help me to have intimacy with Jesus once again. Rekindle that, restore that. But it's not just you praying that for yourself. The the dry spiritual season that you may be in, it, it would be served well by you inviting others to pray for you so that we begin to pray in this direction for each other so that we all might experience a rich and vibrant, intimate walk with Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit brings into our lives and that's what Paul is praying for here. He's praying for intimacy. But not only is he praying for intimacy, he's praying for this word, what we might call illumination. And here's what we see, verse 18. He also prays for illumination, that this too is kind of in the wheelhouse of the Holy Spirit. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He's praying there for what might be called illumination. He's saying, look, your heart, your heart has eyes. And the eyes of your heart need to be open. They need to be enlightened so that you can see more clearly who God is and what God has done for you. Now, a classic example of this is found in Luke chapter 24, where you have these two disciples who are walking on a road to a place called Emmaus. And and then Christ shows up and he begins to walk with them. But at first, they don't understand who's walking with them. So they begin to talk about what just happened in Jerusalem, that Jesus, the one that they believed to be the Messiah, was crucified and he was dead. Their hopes have been dashed and they're talking with this this mysterious person who's walking with them, but then suddenly something happens to them. And we're told in Luke 24 that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. They recognized him to be resurrected. And so they said to each other, get this, weren't our hearts burning within us while, we were ta- while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. What was happening there is illumination. It was the work of the Holy Spirit to bring them into a realization of who Jesus is and the fact that the scriptures were all about Jesus. So he's praying for illumination because illumination is what we need. We need the eyes of our hearts to be open so that we might see who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. This means that illumination is needed every time you sit down and open your Bibles. Every time you read your Bibles, you need to pray this prayer. Because apart from the Holy Spirit's illuminating activity in your life, you cannot understand the scriptures in any meaningful way. You can't understand the scriptures in any felt way, any sensed way, any life-changing way. This is why a guy by the name of Thomas Manton would say God's mind is revealed in scripture, but we can see nothing without the spectacles of the Holy Spirit. We need illumination. We need the Holy Spirit to help us read the Bible and to understand the Bible and to see Jesus in the scriptures. So every time we open up the Bible, we pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes Open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see the beauty of Christ. We don't want the truth of the Bible to get stuck in our heads. We want that truth to drop into our hearts. That's illumination. Illumination is when truth drops. 
And specifically, Paul prays for illumination concerning three gospel realities. There are three things that he calls our attention to. and says, hey, I want you to sense the beauty of these realities. The first one concerns the hope of our calling. And he's talking about there, not, not just wishful thinking. He's not saying, man, I hope, the Super Bowl, I hope the Seahawks win the Super Bowl next year. He's not doing wishful thinking. This is, again, from last week, confident assurance. This is what happens when we say things like, you know, Jesus is coming back. It's what we say when we say Jesus has forgiven us of our sin. It's what we say when we say Jesus loves us. It's what we say when we say Jesus is making all things new. It's confident assurance. It's where our faith resides and we can be confident and we can be assured because the Holy Spirit is illuminating that hope within us. The Holy Spirit is bringing us into a felt sense of that reality so that that future would give shape to our present in the here and now. So he prays for hope. But then there's a second dynamic, second gospel reality concerning our value. He prays that he wants, that we may know the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now an inheritance, of course, is something of value. But notice whose inheritance is being referred to here. It's not ours. He's talking about God's inheritance. And we learn that God's inheritance is the saints. Now, That's not the football team who was supposed to be in the Super Bowl today. He's talking about people who are in Christ, saints who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the church. He's saying the church is the inheritance of God. Essentially, he's saying the church is God's treasured possession, that God's inheritance is his people. What God values in the universe above all else is his people. And so Paul is praying for the church's heart to realize that they are God's greatest treasure, that they are valued by God. Now, I don't know. I don't know of a more important truth that needs to be illuminated in some of your souls right now because some of you don't sense your value. That's why you're settling for a life that is less than the one God has called you to. And what is needed in your soul is for the truth that you are valued by God to drop from your head to your heart. And what's going to trigger that drop is prayer. So we're going to pray this prayer for one another. We're going to pray that each other would know our value, that we're loved by God, wanted by God, that we are God's inheritance. That's a remarkable thing. But then the third gospel reality he points to here is concerns our power. He's saying there's a lot of power in the church, but a lot of that power is going untapped. Because the truth of the church's power isn't dropping from the head to the heart. So he prays for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding of this power. And this is where the passage kind of comes to a crescendo. It comes to a crescendo at this point, And Paul prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Now, the word for power there is the word where we get our English term dynamite. And you know that dynamite holds a lot of potential for power. And he's saying that God has put this type of power in us by way of the Holy Spirit, a lot of potential. This is why you read in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that God's divine power has given us everything, everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It's this power. He's saying our lives have been loaded with spiritual dynamite. But in order for that potential power to be actual power, a fuse must be lit. And the question is, what lights the fuse? Prayer. 
Prayer lights that fuse in our soul so that we ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate, open our eyes to understand the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that he has put in us so that we might be and do all the things that God has called us to be and to do in the world that is right now. So we pray for illumination. We pray for power. But that brings us one more to one more element of prayer in this passage. And not only do you see intimacy and illumination, there's one more dynamic that takes this theme of power and blows it up even more. And it's this idea of impact. It's this idea of impact. This is why when you get to verse 20, Paul takes that theme of power and he begins to unpack it. He begins to show us the nature of this power that has been given to the church. Listen to what he says in verse 20. It says that God exercised this power, that is the power he just referred to, this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. So he's exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. What's interesting about this is that when describing the power, when he's describing the type of power that God has put within us by his spirit, he doesn't reference God's power in creation, which is probably what I would have done. If I'm trying to help people understand how much power God has given to us, and I'm probably going to say, look at what God did in creating the universe. I'd probably say something like, you know, God exercised this power in creating everything. I'd say with a word, God created 3,000 billion trillion stars each one putting out the same energy as a trillion megaton bomb every second that's happening. And I would say that power, that, that incredible creative power is now in you, but that's not where Paul goes. Paul doesn't compare this power to the power of creation. He goes somewhere better. He compares it to the power of resurrection. He's talking about resurrection power. Now think about this with me. I know this is getting kind of heavy. In creation, God brings life out of nothing. But in resurrection, God brings life back from the dead. And he's saying this is the type of power that is at work in the church. It's resurrection power. And you think about it, understand that death isn't neutral. Death isn't a neutral power. Death is corrosive. Death is destructive. Death is a negative power. And death is at work all around us. Because we live in a fallen world and everything in the world is subject to the corrosive power of death. That's true of everything except one thing. That's true of everything except for the Christian soul. It's true of everything except for the heart that is found in Christ. Everything around us may decay, but our souls can't because of resurrection power. This is why Paul would say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our body's falling apart. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. That's resurrection power. And this includes the parts of our character that are corrosive. This is good news for your pride. This is good news for your anger. This is good news for your self-centeredness. Understand that God's resurrection power is at work within us to bring life back to us. That he exchanges our pride for humility. He exchanges our anger for patience. He exchanges our self-centeredness for an other orientation that loves and serves people. This is the power that is at work within us. And the Holy Spirit causes this power to make impact upon us to change our lives. You know, Tim Keller tells a remarkable story about a minister who was in Italy one day, and he, while he was walking through uh, kind of a, a rural area of Italy, he came across a grave of a man who died hundreds of years before, and 
And this guy died not believing in Jesus and actually hating Christianity. But he was also a little afraid of Christianity too. So when he was buried in this plot, the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave. He had a huge slab put over his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there ever was a resurrection. And, and he actually put insignias all over the slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. But evidently, when he was buried, an acorn fell into the grave. So about 100 years later, this acorn had grown up through the grave and it split that slab in two. And so now there's a tall oak tree towering over this man's grave. And the minister looked at it and he asked this question. If an acorn, which has power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? What can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in our lives? What is it that you need right now? What slabs of sin need to be shattered, need to be split up in your life? Do you believe that resurrection power can change you? Do we believe that resurrection power can change us as a church? If we do, then we're not going to allow one another to, to live defeated lives. We're not going to allow one another to be defeated or defined by sin and habits and struggles and hardships. Instead, we're going to go to bat for one another. We're going to intercede for each other. We're going to pray, asking for God's power to impact our lives for our good and his glory. This means we're not going to define ourselves in defeatist kind of ways. This means we're not going to say, well, that's just me. That's just who I am. We're not going to say, well, that's who I've been my whole life. Things aren't going to change now. We're not going to embrace those attitudes because those attitudes deny the power that is being prayed for in this passage. It denies the reality of what Christ has accomplished for us by way of his resurrection. It denies the reality of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, that is filling us up. We're not going to live defeated lives. Saying, well, I can't shake that because I've always been that way. That's not true. And don't let anybody convince you otherwise. So we want to pray in this direction for one another. In order for that truth to drop, we have to pray. If we want to experience resurrection power in our lives and in our church, we must pray. But there's another dynamic to this passage, and this is where the passage gets really, really good. Because not only is he talking about resurrection power, notice what he says next. He says, in seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him, that is Jesus, as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So this is where the passage really should stun us because what's being said about the church in this passage is absolutely stunning. If we hear what this passage is saying about the church, we must repent of having a low, cynical view of the church. This passage insists that we repent of marginalizing the church in our Christianity, marginalizing the church in our relationship with God. This passage demands that we repent of that because notice what he says in verse 22. In verse 22, Paul says that Christ has been exalted and that he's now reigning and ruling over all things. And the list of words there, that, that refers to everything, but included in that is what might be called as spiritual hostile forces, that is Satan and demons. 
We know this because you drop down in chapter two and the word ruler there is used to describe the devil. You keep going to Ephesians chapter six, what we'll get to one day, and it will say, and there we read that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Paul is saying, look, Christ is reigning above all of that. He's been exalted over all things. He's reigning and ruling over, over all spiritual hostilities that may rage against the church that wants to convince us that we're not valued, that we have no hope, that we are powerless people in the world that is. We're being told that Jesus reigns over all of that, so it's not true. But then notice, who does his enthronement benefit? Who is he reigning for? It says very clearly in verse 22 and 23 that God has subjected everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over everything. Why? He's doing that for the church. He's reigning and ruling for the benefit and the blessing of the church. That Christ has been exalted above and given authority over all things for us. And then if you drop down to chapter two, verse six, look what else is said there. It says, he also raised us up, referring to the church, referring to those who are in Christ. He also, referring to God, raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. He's saying, look, Christ is exalted and since you are in Christ, you've been exalted too because what's true of him is true of you. That's, that's an incredible reality. You know, after graduation of my undergrad, I moved on to work on my master's, and that's where I met my wife, and we got married. Her name is Kim, and if you know her, and, and uh, when we got married, I didn't have a job. I was a bum. I couldn't pay for anything. I was eating ramen noodles and not making much progress in my life. I was just reading books all day. It wasn't all that profitable for me, but then I got married, and when I got married, things changed because my wife had a job, and uh, she worked a lot, and she worked well, and she made money, and when we got married, do you realize that in a moment, in an instant, I was no longer broke. I now had money. It wasn't money that I earned. It had money that she had earned, but it benefited me nonetheless. Do you realize that when you become a follower of Jesus, you put your trust in Christ, you are united with him in such a way that what is true of him becomes true of you, that you're broke one moment and you're rich the next. You're weak in one moment, you're strong the next. You were sin-ridden one moment and you were sin-liberated the next. That's what's true of Christ becomes true of you in him. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying this is what's true of the church, that what Christ has, he shares with us. That means his righteousness, that means his holiness, that means his redemption, but it also means his power and his authority. And then notice what else Paul says here. He says the church is his body, referring to Christ, the fullness of the one who fills all things up in every way. Now, circle that word fullness because that is a a mind-blowing concept. It's the same word used in Colossians chapter two to describe Christ, saying in Christ, the fullness of God dwells. So you trace the logic. In Christ, the fullness of God dwelled. And now Paul is saying in the church, the fullness of Christ dwells. It's a ripple effect. It's a cascading effect. The fullness of God in Christ, the fullness of Christ in the church. Again, this means that what's true of Christ is true of us. When I visit my parents back in Louisiana, I meet a lot of people who knew me when I was a toddler. And there's always this uh, older lady who will come up to me and she'll put her hands on my face and she'll look, at and look into my eyes and she'll say, you know, I look at you and all I can see is your dad. And then she'll call other people around and she'll say, hey, look at Andrew. If you look at Andrew, all you're going to see is Gil. That's my dad's, that's my dad's name. 
Well, according to this passage, in a very real sense, God is saying to the entire universe, if you look at the church, that's where you're gonna see my son. Because what is true of him is true in them. And what is true of him is to be made visible in and through them. This is the power that is at work within us. This means that when Satan steps up to accuse us or to condemn us, God looks at us or God reminds him, no, when you look at my church, everything you say about her is wrong. Everything I say about her is right. When you look at my church, you see my son. This means that the church isn't weak. This means that the church isn't frail. It's not fragile. It's not stagnant. It's not struggling. The church possesses the fullness of Christ. And I believe it's time for us to realize who we are as the church and what we have in Christ. Because when we realize these realities, that's when grace is going to be made visible. That's when our position in Christ is going to show up in practical ways as truth drops from our head to our hearts. But again, remember the form of the passage. The form of this passage is all about prayer. Saying, look, if these truths are going to drop, then they're going to drop as you pray as you intercede, as you express your gratitude. And so that's what we want to do. We want to become a prayerful church because we want these realities to be realized in our church. We want who we've been called to be, to be seen to be by the watching watching world. And so we're going to do that now. We're just going to take some time to to pray together. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. You can group up if you want to. You can stay on your own if you want to, however you want to spend these moments. You can pray out loud. You can pray silently in your seat. But I just want to ask you right now to pray for the church. I want you to pray specifically for the three things of intimacy, that God would give us the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit might restore our intimacy with him that you would pray for illumination, that God would illuminate the realities of the gospel in our souls. And I ask that you would pray for impact, that the power of God, his resurrection power, his exalt, his, the power of Jesus' enthronement would be unleashed in our lives and in our church, that you would pray for intimacy, that you would pray for illumination, and that you would pray for impact. Just take a few moments and pray in that direction. <laughs> 